Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. As always, the opinions that are offered on this show are not the opinions of Howard Community College, its employees, staff, and students. And any of the discussions on this show about legal matters are not intended to be legal advice. If you have a legal problem or a legal question, it is vitally important that you seek out an attorney who is knowledgeable in that area of the law, that you acquaint them with the full facts of your situation so they can give you good advice. We have a privilege today of having one of the nation's preeminent criminal defense attorneys on the line, Kathleen Stilling of the firm of Buting, Williams and Stilling. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you, Bob. I'm really glad to be here. So Kathy Stilling has had a sort of fascinating path through the trial courts, including service as a trial judge. Isn't that correct? That's right. I served as a trial judge for a year, but I lost my election because I was appointed by a Democratic governor, and I live in a really red county and it just didn't work out for me. Well, your friend Scott Walker was in office during that period of time, too. That's right. And Act 10, it all happened in the same three or four months that I was running for election. And feelings ran very high here on both sides. But the county is 70% Republican, 30% Democrat. And so it wasn't a good demographic for me. I can but understand. it was a really interesting experience. Well, that's, I, I was going to ask you about that. It made me a much better lawyer. You know, I I understood the pressures judges are under. I understood the need to really explain to judges why they should rule in your favor and really help them put together the facts and the law to justify it to the community. Because in the end, in Wisconsin, all judges are elected right up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So they have to not only make good decisions, but they have to be able to explain it so that somebody can't use it against them later. So making a good record with a judge is really important here. So just so I understand the process, are they initially appointed by political offices and then have to stand for election, or or how does it work exactly? These are elected offices, but if a judge leaves early for some reason, Mm -hmm. retires, or they take another position, or they get elected to Court of Appeals or something, then they'll fill the position, but you have to run in the next cycle, which is usually about five to six months away. So do you have so occasion... So not much time. Do you have occasion to appear before the person who ran against you? Oh, yes. Is, is that an... And inter- he, Go ahead. He was a prosecutor in the office, and we both went up for the appointment, and I got it. And we spent more time sitting outside the governor's office for various interviews than we had in 20 years of dealing cases together. That's kind of funny. So do you appear before him or her in the cases that you're representing people presently? I do. He's in juvenile court now, and I've had a couple of cases before him. And, you know, I knew he would be a good judge. I wish there had been room for both of us. And he's turned out to be a very good judge. And we are friendly. After the election, we met and we talked and hashed things out. When we were both on the campaign trail going to various Republican functions like grazing with the elephants (laughs) or pints in politics, sometimes we would talk to each other more than we talked to other people because we had more in common with each other in the end than we did with a lot of the people at those political events. It's the nicest political story I think I've heard in a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So you have a long career as a criminal defense lawyer. Let me ask you, was that something that you aspired to be when you were younger, or or when did that desire arise? Absolutely not. Okay. Last thing on my mind. Really? I was a history major, and at some point my junior year, I realized that I either had to teach, get a PhD and teach, or I had to figure something else out. So I went to law school. I figured it was problem-solving, required research. I was used to that. It required writing. I was used to that. So off I went with absolutely no clue, except that I didn't want to be a trial lawyer. And naturally? Naturally. Why would anybody want to do that? But my second year in law school, I was totally disillusioned. I thought everybody was in law school to make money. I was really unhappy. And somebody said, you should do this criminal defense clinical program. And I said, that's ridiculous. I don't want to be a trial lawyer. And they said, no, 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 you'll love it. So I tried it, okay? I applied, I got in, and my first day, I went up to the jail to meet my first client. And the Dane County Sheriff's Department took one look at the wet-behind-the-ears kid (laughs) and said, let's have her go interview Brian. And I'm like, okay. And they took me back to Brian. Brian was, frankly, psychotic naked, and had smeared feces all over the walls. That's nice. I attempted to interview Brian, but it didn't really work out very well, and I didn't really get a whole lot of uh, cogent information. But I walked out of there saying, this is it. I'm going to do this for the rest of my career. There are people out there who need someone to speak for them when they can't speak for themselves. Absolutely. So I applied for one job, the public defender in Milwaukee, I got it, and the rest is history. So you had sort of a baptism in feces at that first visit. I guess you could call it that. (laughs) How fascinating that that is something that inspired you to undertake, you know, a lifelong career of prominence. Well, he was in such terrible need. And, of course, the outcome worked out really well. He sort of got himself back together with the help of some antipsychotic medications. The case was dismissed, and I got a chance to shake his hand as he walked out of the courtroom. So it felt like I had done something really important for an individual. And I had the feeling that that this was just the right path for me. So that's what I did. And, you know, when I, when I got to the PD's office in Milwaukee, I, I wanted to go there because I thought the cases would be interesting. And I thought there'd be a lot of, I don't know, a lot of very interesting criminal work there. So I arrived, and of course, I met my future husband the very first day, Jerry Buting, your friend and colleague. Law school colleague, sure. Yep. And we were part of a really big, good group of lawyers who were all like young, passionate, and we had so much fun brainstorming cases, and I just loved my years there. And how many years were you there? Eight years. And did you find that the casework is as interesting and exciting as as you had presupposed? Well, no, of course not. (laughs) That sounds like my experience. There was a lot of grunt work to do. Sure. And uh, a lot of, like, making your case stats and your numbers and, you know, all that kind of... What does that mean exactly? I don't think that the public really understands kind of how overwhelmed and overloaded public defender offices are. Every public defender's office, probably around the country, has a system where you have to take a certain number of cases. 
And in Wisconsin at that time, it was you had to have taken the equivalent of 16 felonies or an equivalent number of misdemeanors, which I think was 45, every month. Oh, my gosh. So what people would do is they would, quote, unquote, pad their stats. So they would go to intake and they try to find some cases they thought would resolve easily. You know, traffic cases, sure. uh, confession burglaries, you know, things where you could resolve it quickly and then you could sink your teeth into the more challenging cases. So you would try to take a mix. But it really could get overwhelming because at that time, unlike now, for example, if you took a homicide, it was the same number of points as a burglary or a car theft or you know, something like that, and we were always getting conflicting instructions. Take a lot of the homicides. We need to keep them in the office, so then you take homicides. Then it's, you got to make your numbers. You know what I mean? There were always these, the administration was always changing the bar. So were, so, the, were the numbers established by the legislature, the governor, the PD's office? How did they come up with these numbers, which sound excessive? The numbers were set by the legislature that we were supposed to take in, I forget, like 150% of the number of cases that was considered the most you should be able to take by the oh, NLADA, I forget, National... It was a, a legal organization for public defenders and legal aid people. Mm -hmm. And they had set a number, and our statistics had to be 50% over that number. That just seems like it's an injustice to the people, and it's an injustice to the public defenders. That's right. It was. And, you know, I mean, we worked really hard. I'd go home at night, I'd have dinner, and I'd, I'd work again until about 10 o'clock. Wow. I'd have sometimes two or three cases set for trial in a week. And you know, how, we never know what was going to go. Yeah, how do you do that then? Do you, I mean, are there times where you have two at the same time and they both go and you have to juggle somehow? No. Okay. <laughs> no, they'd let you off the hook on number two if number one got started. Okay. But it was also, it was a really exciting place to work. And it was like, a, I don't know, a criminal defense think tank. Mm-hmm. And you had access to all these really experienced people to talk to, to mentor you. And, you know, I came out of there a better lawyer than I would have even imagined. Sure. And then I did six years of civil work, personal injury work, and learned a lot more about science and doctors, expert witnesses. And then when I joined my husband in the practice 25 years ago, wow. I was a better lawyer because I had done civil work. Sure. So, like, everything you do can make you better. So being a judge was helpful to you, although that was later in your career. Being a public defender was absolutely instrumental, and being a civil lawyer gave you another aspect, too. Right. So our HCC audience should uh, make sure that they embrace doing all kinds of different things. Yeah, and the work that public defenders do is so essential. I mean, you know, the only thing I really had an, an issue with my judicial opponent saying was, during a debate, he said something about how he didn't have a problem with criminal defense lawyers. They were a necessary cog in the machine. Oh, my. And I got absolutely, you know, livid and started talking about how criminal defense lawyers are so essential to the administration of justice that the founders of this country put the right to an attorney in a criminal case 
in the Constitution, enshrined it there because it is so essential that everybody have that voice for them in a system that can absolutely run you through a ringer. And an awful... that was my best vote the whole campaign. And how did the public react, or did you get any sense of that? Very favorably. I mm-hmm. mean, there were lots of really good comments. People I ran into later during the campaign said, we really loved what you had to say. We never thought about it like that. You know, it's great. Keep it up. <laughs> that and is... I had a lot of, I'm, I had the support of the sheriff's department mm-hmm. from Waukesha County. They thought I was a good judge. They thought I was really fair to the police. The bailiffs who were in my court every day went back to their colleagues and said, you know, she's really great. So it really had less to do with my work as a criminal defense lawyer than it did with the political climate at the time. Can't change that, I'm afraid. Nope. And I bet Waukesha County hasn't changed vastly either. No. But you know what? I think in the end it sort of turned out the way it's supposed to be. I came back to the practice, and I, after an adjustment, you know, I really was happy to be back here. So in addition to your work in these various jobs, you've also been a member of all manner of criminal defense organizations and associations. And, and could you talk a little bit about that and how that's affected how you practice law and how you live your life? Well, back in the 1990s, I was elected the president of the Wisconsin Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And that year, there was a movement to bring the death penalty to Wisconsin. So that was what I spent that entire year doing, working with various prosecutors around the state and other stakeholders to try to stem that wave of public opinion, which, of course, had arisen from an egregious case involving the murder of a police captain. Sure. And so, you know, another example of how bad cases that are difficult for the public can sometimes make bad law. And in that particular case, we had a very strong support from the prosecutors around the state that they felt the death penalty would not enhance safety and, in fact, would just make things more difficult for victims, would make closure take longer, And, you know, the confidence in the system would actually erode if they brought it to Wisconsin. So so they beat it back. Had it never existed in Wisconsin before? It existed when we were a territory. Okay. But in 1848, we became a state. And sometime within that few-month period, there was a really uh, celebrated murder case where a man had been publicly hung in Milwaukee, and it turned into a circus, including people selling food and you know, souvenir items, and it so disturbed the the brand-new legislature that they abolished the death penalty. And I gather you defeated it in 1995 as well. Right. Is there any move afoot presently in Wisconsin for such a thing, or is that in the past now? You know, periodically, if there's a bad homicide that shocks the conscience, there will be a movement in that direction, Mm -hmm. um, but it hasn't really gained traction since then. So what do you think the most important criminal defense issues are in Wisconsin presently? Hmm. I think that we really need to abolish the read technique of interrogations in Wisconsin. Could you explain to and our I, audience what that means? Sure. Back in the you know 1910s, 20s, 30s, police officers would kind of routinely use physical force in order to get confessions. And then there were things like they would use the third degree, shining a light in a suspect's face, you know, shouting at them, things like that. And those were really 
the courts did not like that kind of, you know, torture, you know, and eliciting confessions through torture. So then a man named John Reed developed a technique of using psychological ways in order to get people to confess. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole structured technique, which includes not allowing the suspect to, to deny, interrupting them if they do, telling them that you know the truth, police can lie to them about evidence that doesn't, you know, claim evidence exists when it does not, mm-hmm. claim facts exist that do not. And it's a very structured process that is designed to reduce the person to, you know, kind of a confused, I don't know, suppressed kind of emotional, hopeless mess, and then basically extract the confession. Now, it's very good at getting confessions from guilty people, but it also works well in getting confessions from people who are not guilty. So it's the biggest reason why there are false confessions in, I forget what it is, like 25 to 30% of exoneration cases through DNA. Wow. So people are found to be exonerated, innocent, and they falsely confess. A little like the Central Park Five. Yes, exactly. So using this technique with juveniles like the Central Park Five or like Brendan Dassey in the Avery case, sure. using it with people who have developmental disabilities, who have any kind of mental health problems, um, you know, who have any dementia, who have uh, alcohol or drug addictions, you know, with them, the possibility of a false confection rises. So it doesn't sound like a fair fight. How do you get rid of the read techniques, and what's the alternative? The alternative, which is used now all over Europe, is a method that works a little bit more like an interview. Okay. So what you do, like a reporter interview, you start out by interviewing the person in detail about their story about what happened. Mm -hmm. And then you go back and you re-interview them again. But you don't lie. You don't use, you don't interrupt them. You don't yell at them. You don't tell them that they're lying. You just take them through the story. And the idea is that the discrepancies and problems will begin to emerge if someone is lying. Because it's very hard for people to maintain complicated lies. So the idea is then you just keep re-interviewing them until some of these discrepancies come out, and then you start asking more pointed questions about those. But it's fair, and it doesn't involve this coercive, these coercive techniques. And, you know, law enforcement in Europe and the UK are very successful in getting confessions using a non-coercive technique, and I see no reason why we can't either. I wonder if there's a body of study concerning exonerations in Europe and the United States and comparing the false confession rates and that sort of thing that would indicate the greater likelihood you get the right people in the first place if you use the European technique. You know, there may well be. I don't know what it is. You'd have to get Jerry back on the show. Ah, is that something that he, he's more knowledgeable about? That's something he spent more time looking into, and I've gleaned a lot of my knowledge about the European system just from listening to him over the past several years. So I would say abolishing the read technique is probably the thing that would bring the most fairness to the investigative process. Sure. 
But in terms of fairness to the criminal justice system, you know, you have to give people access to better lawyers. You have to pay the lawyers fairly so that they stay and they gain experience and that the lawyers who are representing the indigent people of our state are good and experienced and know what they're doing and and can give people a quality defense. That would be the other thing I'd say is the most important thing we can do to make the actual criminal justice trial and court system the most fair. I would Get ima- people good lawyers. I would imagine that also helping the lawyers pay for the experts that are sometimes necessary to refute faulty forensic evidence would also be quite helpful. Absolutely. I mean, there is so much junk science out there, and there's so much new research about the problems with various kinds of things that the courts have taken for granted for years. Fingerprints. Yes. You know, there's very little standard for what is a match and what isn't a match. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of subjectivity in it still. Tool marks, what they call ballistics, like markings on bullets or casings, Mm -hmm. a lot of that is terribly subjective. And, you know, depending on how you are manipulating your microscope and what kind of lighting you're using, things can look like a match or not. So there's a lot of work to, I mean, and hair analysis, hair comparison has been completely debunked. So I really think that there need to be a much more stringent, I don't know, standards for forensic science. You can't just throw anything up against the wall and say it's science. So we're getting ready to wind down, and I did want to just talk briefly about a case that you recently tried up in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, involving a, a prominent football player that uh, occurred, I think, in July this year, correct? Yeah. Well, the yeah, the not guilty verdict came back August 2nd. Okay. Okay. So this was a case of some note because it's a prominent and very well-regarded football player. And could you just lay down a little bit of the background and just discuss briefly the issues that occurred in the case and why you think the outcome was what it was, other than obviously that he was innocent? Sure. This young man was a highly regarded wide receiver on the Badger football team. And he was not only that, but he was also an academic all-Big Ten. So he was a good student, came from very poor circumstances, you know, grew up in Georgia under really difficult poverty and was kind of raised out of that by a public school middle school teacher. And eventually worked his way through, got a scholarship to play at Wisconsin and you know, like a lot of football players, was the object of a lot of interest of the young women of campus. Mm -hmm. So one particular night or day, he met a girl. You know, she said, I'm going to set you up with a friend of mine. She had planned to be going out with his friend from the football team, and that guy never showed up. So, you know, one thing led to another, and The first girl went in his bedroom and started taking her clothes off, and the second girl he invited to join them, and she came in. And there was consensual sexual, you know, activities. And at the end of it, the young woman who was invited in second, who I think felt worried now that her other boyfriend, so to speak, friend with benefits, would get wind of this, and she started complaining about how she felt bad about herself and she went in to get her girlfriend and the two of them had a fight because the other girl wanted to stay with him. And so the two girls had an argument. One girl stormed out. He drove everybody else home, went to check on the girl who'd left. 
and chatted with her for a while. She sent him a text with heart emojis and things after the fact. Meanwhile, the other girl went back to her dorm and found a guy to cry, you know, cried on his shoulder about this, but she couldn't say, the guy I wanted to come didn't show up. She couldn't say, I slept with him and now I feel bad about it. Sure. Hooking up with a guy I didn't really care about. And so instead she said, I was too drunk and he had sex with me while I was too drunk. Luckily, Madison is covered with video cameras. The other girl claimed to be too drunk, too, after her friend told her that they had both been raped and talked her into believing it. Oh, my. And so we had videos of everything, going in the bar where they met, being in the bar, going out of the bar, going into his apartment, coming out of his apartment, going into the dorms, everything. And these girls looked fine. They were texting and walking in a straight line. They were, uh, one girl was walking backwards for half a block. Oh, my gosh. While she was so trashed that she couldn't, you know, claim she couldn't even know, didn't even know what she was doing. So the videos really made the difference in this case. Plus, you know, how do you explain the late night text with the heart emoji and the kissy face? So our client took the stand and, you know, I think made a very powerful impression We've voir dire that the jury was all white. Our client was African-American. I talked to the jury a lot about race and, you know, how would they feel being in this position. And the jury was really aware and really on top of this issue and I think worked hard to eliminate any bias that they had, you know, dealing with a black defendant, two white girls, when all of them were white. And they came back in 30 minutes, not wow. guilty. That is extraordinary. And I really think it was logic, you know, it was logic and looking at the case facts and seeing how they did not support the girl's story, the girl's stories, that just saying you were raped doesn't mean you were raped. Just saying that you were too intoxicated to consent didn't really mean that unless the physical evidence supported it. You know, and so I think the jury like let go of all the emotion because the DA did an argument that was all about black men being sexually aggressive. Oh my gosh. And this guy being a privileged athlete who was going after two white girls and it it just bombed. I saw the jury and they were looking at him like you're disgusting. <laughs> Kathy, that is incredible. I know, it was wild. And we got up and argued logic. And we argued that race doesn't matter here. And you can't use old racial stereotypes to convict someone. And you shouldn't even try. And the only reason he was is because the facts were not on his side. Wow. And he has and, uh, returned to the Wisconsin football team, as I recall. Well, this is an even bigger miracle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We've, I that. mean, title... Someday you should get a Title IX lawyer on your show. You know, I could do that. You should, and I'll talk to you about that later. But Title IX, you know what the standard of proof is to kick a kid out of school because somebody's made a sexual assault allegation? No, what is it? Preponderance of the evidence. Right, right. That is In other words, one hair over 50%. Yeah. And it's not that for any other non-academic violation. So if you deface property or you, you know, do anything else, it's 
clear and convincing, which is a higher standard. In Maryland, but you can a, stab your roommate and it's clear and convincing, whereas if you're right. accused of sexual misconduct, you kiss somebody when they don't want you to, it's preponderance. Right. That's right. And it's just nuts. So he had been kicked out of school before the trial, and after the trial, we petitioned for reinstatement, and we provided the university with a lot of additional evidence that they had not had and evidence from witnesses who had not cooperated in their investigation. And they reversed the two sexual assault allegations and reinstated him. And then the team took him back, I don't know, like 15 minutes later, and he's back playing. He got two touchdowns on my birthday wow. about a week and a half ago. That's a pretty good birthday present. Yeah, and he's a great kid. Yeah. I mean, was it a bad judgment having a threesome with two best friends? Yeah. You know, should he be more careful about his personal conduct? Absolutely. But was he guilty of the charges? No. And the jury came back on that loud and clear. What else is interesting is the public response after his acquittal was to bring him back. And uh, there was a hashtag, let QT play, that was trending on Twitter. I mean, even women almost universally supported his return. That is a wonderful story. And in an age when there's a lot of understandable excitement, the Me Too movement and that sort of thing, you don't want to see miscarriages of justice overcompensating the other way either. Right. And so, I mean, this was a good indication that Juries can still look at the facts, look at the evidence, and they can put some of those ideas or the kind of emotional appeals aside. It's not the most perfect system in the world, but when it works well, it's a beautiful thing to see. I think on that note, it's time for us to sign off because that's a wonderful notion. And I'd like to thank you, Kathy, for appearing on Everyday Law. I would love to get you back to talk about some of this stuff more in the future. Sounds good. Thanks very much. Anyhow, it, it was a pleasure, and I look forward to talking to you soon. All right. This is Everyday Law with your host, Bob Clark. Farewell, and thank you. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.